You're listening to a podcast from the Media Motel. Coming up this week in episode 610, the sheer joy of Wham, the lost world of album sleeves, chucking the ashes of your mother at pink, and deconstructing the Arctic monkeys. That's all coming up after the Silver Seas, and I'm the one. You're the one with flowers in your pity. great track from an album 10 years old this week one of the greatest underrated artists and bands of all time from the album alaska the silver season i'm the one very much agree like you say criminally underrated really um brilliant brilliant output from them Welcome to the Parish Council. It's episode 610. Mm. I'm Terence Stackham. And 
Well, has she been invited to George Osborne's wedding? And if she has, <laughs> did the invitation come through email? Let's ask <laughs> Juliet Harris. Do you know, if it wasn't the wedding before of the year beforehand, it's the wedding of the year now, isn't it? Goodness oh, really? me. How are they going to seat people? Who's going to sit next to who? Oh, man. Anyway, I, I I wish with all my heart that I was there with a big punnet of popcorn to uh, to enjoy the proceedings. However, I will be, alas, reduced to continually refreshing Twitter and socials like <laughs> the rest of us to find out what is going on. Um, entertainingly, like many people, before it, it was dropped, the email was dropped into paste bin on Thursday evening and available widely online. I was mining my contacts to try and see who had had it and had a very entertaining exchange with a contact of mine who is one of the people that runs the newsroom at the Financial Times uh, to see if they had, had, had managed to get hold of it. And bless her, she had been to see Bruce Springsteen at Hyde Park with no oh, signal yes. and so emerged at quarter past ten to about eight messages asking her the same thing. And in the end, it was left to me to send her the pastebing link. Yeah. So what could I say? Not only do I have good contacts, Sati, I tend to give them the information as well. Anyway, I'm not attending the wedding. I am attending the holy reunion of myself and Sir T after some time away. Hello, everyone. Indeed. I think they'll have to put barbed wire down the island oh. through the pews to keep people away from each other. Oh, it's so there's definitely going to be t- there's definitely going to be holding pens, aren't there, at this wedding? Yes, definitely. Which nothing says I love you forever like having to cordon off sections of the guests, is there? <laughs> exactly. Um, history often reinvents the past, and and, and that is mm. true. It's true in pop music as much as of course it is in yeah. any other sphere of life. You can often read about how Wham were derided at their peak in the 1980s, mm. but that's not my memory at all. Initially, they were seen as a bit edgy with their their, their soul on the yes. doll lyrics, which mm. endeared them to people like John Peel. But uh, he subsequently sneered at their later success. Um, then they transferred through to mainstream pop and then beyond as it became abundantly clear that George Michael was so extraordinarily talented but there there was no dismissal of them they were seen as another pop outfit good pop outfit along with ABC Culture Club Mm. and so on one trope that did follow them was that Andrew Ridgely was the lucky passenger clutching Mm. to the tailcoat of George Michael's talent. Well, this week, Jules, we watched a new documentary released on Netflix this week, and rather wonderfully, that theory is blown away. Absolutely. I Can I just say, I absolutely loved this film. I thought mm. it was gorgeous. I thought it was so beautifully done. I thought it was... Um, I just thought it was so... I mean, we've talked in the past about how annoying it is to have a facile narration and b talking heads. And actually, mm. we didn't really have it either here. It was very much a sort of a it felt like you were back in time. And of course, the slightly strange quality to it was the fact that it featured uh, prominently uh, an interview with George Michael throughout, who now, of course, is no longer with us. So it was weird to hear from him beyond the grave. But I thought it was so wonderfully done it was also my complaint previously is that if it's an unofficial documentary you don't get you don't get all the the access to everything and this was great because it meant that we got to see you know long videos we got to we never got to hear all the music we got great access to both Andrew and George and it really like you say it really did explain that Wham was a Wham, Wham was a love story between the two of them really a platonic a platonic love story it worked and they came out of it intact because they clearly loved each other very much and they clearly respected each other very much they were best friends and i thought that it was it was just great how 
you know, that what was, was so likable about them was, as they put it, they were just two idiots, really. They didn't have this very <laughs> slick operation behind them. They choreographed the dance routine to Young Guns, their first hit in George's mum's back bedroom, I think, or someone, you know, their house. Mm. You know, the first time they went to the top of the pops, one of them had to sleep in a child's bed. I mean, it was, it was, they just seemed, they had this incredible talent, like you say, and it became obvious that George's songwriting talent, as Andrew said, they both know, they both knew that it would eventually take him somewhere else but they as you say they're, they're, they're clear in this documentary that you know originally Wham was Andrew's band you know it was it was his idea George was kind of copying Andrew and then eventually got the sort of confidence and the strength to do his own thing but I loved the lack of resentment between the two of them I loved the way that they dealt it was very honest so they dealt with you know Shirley and, and, and Andrew sort of urging George Michael not to come out to his family and how you know he was asking the wrong people for advice as they said but they were 19 or 20 and they didn't know what to do and it was it was one it was very clear-eyed I thought I, I liked the fact that they acknowledged it was a mistake and you know it did set George on a course that ultimately made him very unhappy but equally there was no blame because that was just how you would expect 19, 20 year olds to, to process things at that time. The the music is, of course, marvellous. It's timeless, I think. It's it's and also timely at the minute as well. And that they were it was very much about escapism. It was very much about, you know, acknowledging that life for young people was a relentless toil. But, you know, like you say, it was kind of, you know, soul on the dole. It was this kind of social consciousness rap. And and I just, you know, I, I love Wham. I love the timelessness of their music. The fact that they bring joy Club Tropicana is such a joyful me- record and I will still I'll still play it out, you know, and people still love it. People still love Wham's music. Mm. It was it was, you know, it was there was just something about them that caught a moment in time that was just magical. And this documentary, I thought, summed that up really well. And it was very even handed. So when it dealt with the, the, the sides that were slightly sort of more difficult, it was it was just, you know, I, I just was so entertained by the fact that, as I said, they were just amateurs, really. I'd never seen footage of their ill-fated ska band that they were in at the beginning. <laughs> I did not expect to hear a ska version of Fur release by the no. executive. And that by their own admission, they were really, although I love the fact that they frequently disagreed with each other. And... Um, and often you would hear one of them go, well, I think this. The other one go, well, George thinks this. I think that. But it was, but the fact of the matter was, it was a good lesson in how to disagree as well, because they frequently disagreed on stuff. Mm. Yeah, they never seemed to sort of fall out. I thought it was, it was very well done. Um, I didn't realize that DC Lee had started off with them. Um, in the mm. in the very beginning, that was. Although I noticed she disappeared, and they didn't really talk about that. But um, but it was. Yeah. I, this was this was joy. I thought it was genuinely joyful. Obviously, unbearably poignant by about by the fact that George Michael is no longer with us, and I wish he was. I really wish he was. He seems like such a nice man on this. I love hearing him interviewed. He's always so so self-aware and and so sort of reflective. And I just I loved this film. I thought it was so good. It was it captured them. It captured the importance of Andrew Ridgely as well, and also the the ego freeness of Andrew Ridgely as well. Like you say, this narrative forever that you know, oh, it was George's band. But Andrew just seemed to be George's biggest supporter. And he just had this idea, you know, he didn't seem to mind. And he, you know, he 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 didn't seem to 
he wasn't bothered about the fact that, you know, George became the focus. He just seemed appreciative of George's talent and also how generous of George Michael to co-credit Andrew Ridgely on Careless Whisper so that he didn't have to worry about anything ever again. I just, mm. I love this. I thought it was brilliant. I would watch this again now if I wasn't talking to you. <laughs> mm. I enjoyed um, the, the um, explanation of the sliding doors moment where George Michael, then Yog, um, comes to this new school. And they, they, the teacher brings him into the classroom and says, well, I need somebody to look after him, you know, to be his friend, to introduce him. And Andrew Ridgely put his hand up and said, I'll do it, you know, not knowing anything mm. about him. And from that simple putting yes. up his hand and saying, well, I'll be his, his, his you know, school pal. How um, lovely. What, yes. Such a, a, an outfit was born. I should say at the outset that um, I loved Wham at the time and I still do. And I'm not being gauche at all. I adore George Michael. Yes. And um, Careless Whisper and Last Christmas are two of my favourite songs of all time. So rather naturally, I, like you, I love this new documentary. Um, mm. Andrew and George looking impossibly young. And yeah. it, it's astonishing to consider this was all 40 years ago, really. Um, I thought equally amazing was to see the then contemporary footage and photos showing that swift transformation of yes. Yog into George Michael one minute he's um a rather clumsy overweight um Greek mm. boy the next minute you know he, he's an absolutely dashing dazzling superstar absolutely. um as you said oh thank goodness there were no real talking heads as such a few mm. interventions from people really closely involved like Simon Simon Napier Bell, which were very useful and, and interesting. And the whole thing based upon a, a recent interview with Andrew and an in-depth interview George had with um, Mark Goodyear shortly before he died. Uh, that's where we got those snippets from. But yes, what came across, I can't say more, more than you did. In fact, it, it almost made me quite tearful at times. Me was, too, me too. Yeah, what lovely people Andrew and George were, yes, or indeed just, in Andrew's just, case. Just are. really lovely blokes, just, mm. just you know, that really loved each other, that, that didn't take themselves too seriously, took what they did seriously, but not themselves seriously. And like you say, just yeah, I was I was quite teary at times as well, mm. just because it was it was just so involving and the idea that because they were just so amateurish at the beginning, mm. because they just didn't really know what they were doing, but had that self belief and also, you know, the fact that they have wham rap and and you know careless whisper and and young guns really early on and we're just eighteen year olds who just turned up at record companies and went here this is it's um I loved the tales of them round the cabaret circuit and around <laughs> the sort of club circuit as well as George Michael putting it in the same poor old sorts every week <laughs> you know mime artists and stuff and the fact is why I love the sort of interviews you read when they interview Elton John about his time round the clubs when he was fourteen fifteen year old they really worked for that success and it just goes to show there isn't I mean they were fairly successful they were the successful fairly quickly I think that executive footage was 1979 and two years later they were having hits but um but the, the idea that you know you had to do work for it and that's why I always admire the Spice Girls as well the Spice Girls did endless PAs you know even though it was relatively overnight they still really slogged for it and I, I think that's that's something that I've admire very much about them as well but yeah what a band what a lovely film made with love i think for sure absolutely i just wanted to add in some absolutely fascinating footage from the archive material as you say um george overcoming his early imposter syndrome mm. and also i found really fascinating was 
when um, Wham went off to China, when China yes. was more or less as isolated as North Korea is yeah. now, and seeing um, sort of your ordinary Chinese person in the street reacting to George and Andrew sort of mooching around marketplaces yes. and so on, it's amazing. One thing um, I think this film nails perfectly is the change from George as as a pop star to something so much more significant was when um, George was singing Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me at yes. Live Aid. I remember many of us just going, wow, and yeah. in, endorsed even more what a voice and such charisma he had. And as, as you say, Miss George Michael greatly oh he was just an just just a star and also like you say it says wonderful things about Andrew Ridgely that he knew that George was a star Mm. and that he knew that ultimately he would outgrow the band he always knew that but never minded just just no resentment at all just stood aside and said you know George go and fly really absolutely and and you know and didn't really want to be you know had sort of disappeared and you just think for him you know and Mm. and you know just just what a lovely man just what Mm. a lovely lovely man we all need a friend like Andrew Ridgely, don't we, really? So this is Wham! It's produced by Simon Halfon and directed splendidly by Chris Smith. And it's on Netflix um, right now. Highly recommend. It is. Go and watch it. It's great. Coming right up, the lost world of album sleeves and Mm. what we miss about those 12 inches of uh, cardboard. That's next after Björk.
had the pleasure of listening to this album with someone that never listened to it before the other week who enjoyed it very much and I my, I regret to inform you all there are people that will really hate me for telling you this fact mm. um debut by that came from debut by Bjork her debut not quite her debut solo album but her debut solo album as an adult she did release an album as a mm. child star in Iceland but really we're sort of starting Bjork mm. from here as a solo artist release date 5th of July so earlier this week 1993 that record is 30 years old i know i know anyway um i just i you know some of the production that record a little bit of its time but i ju- i just love it i just think that it's such a wonderful album and i love the kind of clubbiness of bjork and she's gone on to do some incredible solo works and you know really pushing boundaries but i just love club kid bjork is probably my favorite iteration of bjork and that is a crying from debut well, what a debut album. And uh, mm. I, I really like the production on it by Nelly Hooper. I think uh, yes. of its time, I thought it, you know, it, it added to it marvellously. Mm. And um, in a sense, that was a rare track because it wasn't released as a single. There were five nice. singles taken Mad. from it. So, I know, yeah. exactly. And it could have been released as a single. It's mm. got, you know, it's got Good single enough. written on it. It's incredible, isn't it? Like you say, it's got this incredible... Um, you know, eleven songs, five are singles. The rest could have been singles. Mm. And also, there was, I think, there was, they turned out to be six singles because it was reissued with Play Dead on it as well. Oh. So, uh, so, so then, if it's six tracks out of twelve, fifty percent of an entire album are singles. That's extraordinary, isn't it? It's, it's Venus as a Boy was on on that, wasn't it? I think um, so. Anyway. Yes, it was. So the, yeah. so the singles, if you include, if you include um, um, the. Um, uh, I think if you include a, a Play Dead, I think the singles were, um, oh no, five including Play Dead, in my point. Mm. So, so uh, Human Behaviour, Venus is a Boy, Play oh. Dead, Big Time Sensuality, Violently Happy. Amazing. Well, I'm quite the convert to streaming services, as many of us know. I was right in there when Spotify launched, and I love the convenience of all my favourite music being one simple click away, or just even by saying which track or album mm. I want through, through a smart speaker. Indeed. Now. And it's just, you know, that's especially handy in the car, you know, no more fiddling about with CDs and trying to squeeze more CD covers in the door pocket. Um, Oh, God, absolutely. Having said all that, you know there's a but coming here, so I'll come in with it. Yeah, come on. Play the hit, Sati. Come on. Of course, I miss not the CDs and their covers, but the old 12-inch covers Mm. of vinyl albums. I imagine... I reckon nobody really bothers about album or single track covers anymore for publicity purposes. But there was an absolute golden age when the sleeve was so important in mm. linking the visual to your yes. upcoming oral experiences or experience with the with the music. Well, there's a documentary released next week called Squaring the Circle, the story of hypnosis. Mm. Great name by, as well. Yes, yeah. Directed by Anton Corbin. And Jules Storm Thorgerson and Aubrey Powell, they really did bring album covers into a higher form of art. Absolutely. I mean, uh, and also I hadn't quite anticipated just how many album covers 
as well. They did mm. hundreds of, of them. Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, Beta Gabriel, 10CC, Paul McCartney, all of whom are interviewed for this film, by the way. I mean, that's I know we've just complained about Talking Heads. Well, if you're mm. going to have a lineup of Talking Heads, at least make them A-list big hitters. And they all very much are, I would say. The film looks good because it's made by, um, I never know how to pronounce his name, Anton Corbin. Is that how it's pronounced? That's it. Um, yeah, who, um, known for photographing Joy Division. I think he directed the brilliant film Control about Joy Division, which, again, shockingly came out years ago now, but um, is really <laughs> worth watching. So I would I'd very much like to watch this film because it's got great pedigree, I think. Um, and also he went on to make lots of music videos himself. Um, like you say, um, an incredible like sort of um, track record that they had. Um, and, you know, they just had this knack of coming up with a visual, which, like you say, you know, the House of the Holy by Led Zeppelin, The Women on the Rocks, you know, they all wish you were here. Then probably, I, you know, I think, and this is controversial for me to say this, mm. Seti, given that we're both big Beatles fans, but I think Dark Side of the Moon is the most recognisable album cover ever. Probably true, yeah. I think yeah. so. Yeah. Maybe Sarge, Sergeant Pepper probably second, mm. I would say. Mm. But I just think if you start it, at the, because the vision is so simple, all you have to do is to draw a triangle, and then when you start the prism, everyone goes Dark Side of the Moon. It's mm. it's, And I, I wrote a round for a quiz once where I was describing... I was like, name the album from the description of the sleeve. And looking it back on it now, they virtually all came from the 70s and the 80s. Mm. And they were, you know, as you say, the size, the size of a vinyl cover, meaning that the image is much more important than a CD, which is much smaller. Looking at an album in a rack, your eye has to pick that out, isn't it? It's like mm, book covers, you much. have to draw mm. towards it. And they were almost all by hypnosis as well, because it's um it's it's really um you know, it's really strange. And I love this. Um, I love this. Uh, this summary of, of one of the two behind it, Thurgerson, uh, passed away in 2013. Um, he had a great reputation. Nick Mason from Pink Floyd, um, <laughs> who once was quoted as saying, Storm Thurgerson was a man who wouldn't take yes for an answer. <laughs> I love that as a phrase. He's just, you know, was fighting for this thing as a sort of singular kind of focus. And just I just I'm you know I can't wait to watch this um Pink Floyd I think particularly if you wanted a band to sum up the vinyl age I think it probably would be Pink Floyd and their sleeves I mean animals with Battersea Power Station on it as well with the flying pig everybody knows that don't they everyone would be able to have a, a guess at what there was um there's a good interview with um what I quite like about it is, is I've interviewed Peter Saville for this, who is a bit of a kind of a, a, a counterweight to hypnosis, is that his design, he did a lot of Joy Division and New Order scenes, and they were known for being very minimal, weren't they? So mm. again, if you described, if you'd said, oh, there's a single sleeve that's a blue background with a floating leaf in the middle, I think a lot of music fans would say that was that was true faith. Um, you know, most people would probably be able to recognise the sleeve of Blue Monday, famously lost the money every time they it was so expensive to make that they lost money every time a copy of Blue Monday was sold because the sleeve was so expensive um and uh, yeah it's it just looks fantastic this film and the idea that you sort of learn about hypnosis and the fact that I probably couldn't have told you their name but if you asked me to, if you described their album Suze I could probably name you every single album they designed mm-hmm. no, fair, fair point I mean, I'm looking forward to the uh, film as well we must uh, look out for it in a, in a week or two's time I, I really miss really do miss that tactile 
relationship with album sleeves. I mean, you had to be wary with some, of course. You had to put the Stones sticky fingers in a plastic sleeve because the zipper on its cover would ruin any adjacent uh, record. Mm. And public images metal box, I have to keep that in isolation as it's rusting right through. Oh, no. On. Yes. Yeah, there's it's more rust anybody- than metal on it. I was going to say, does anybody have a copy of that that hasn't? Right, I remember once saying that doing an interview with John Lydon, who we have nuanced views on on this podcast. But mm. I remember reading an interview with him once, and he said, and, and someone that was it, Cash for Questions in Q, where you'd you'd send questions in and you'd get sent twenty quid, I think, or something if your question was used. And someone basically said, "My metal box is rusting. Will you replace it?" John Lydon basically said that on the line. So so many people say to this to me, and the answer is no, I don't care. And I very <laughs> much admire that as a viewpoint. Great. Thank you, John. Um, yes, John. I've got my top five things that I miss about vinyl and their sleeves. Mm, go on. Da, 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 da. Number five. <laughs> <laughs> Looking out for messages in the inner groove of a record, oh, like yes. a Porky Peckham Prime Cut. It used Absolutely. to say. <laughs> I, I, I had uh, unfortunately lost, but um, I had uh, one of the first pressings of The Queen is Dead, and that had Them Was Rotten Days pressed in the in the line-out <laughs> crew, which I've always enjoyed. Um, I remember the, um, <laughs> the the initial pressings of Be My God by Suede, which was very much a homemade single affair. Justine Frischman, still in the band at that point, saying that she said they pressed in the run-out groove the F word twice in a row on one side, <laughs> and then double F on the other side and she lamented the fact that she'd thrown a load in a skip and they're now worth about 500 quid each I think but um but yeah yes. I do like I do like run out grooves like you say the messages and and that's often a way of identifying how much records are worth on discogs because it's a good wow. way of seeing which pressing it was number four going to a friend's house in 1972 carrying steely dance mm. car oh, so everyone could see how cool you are Oh, that is that is very cool, actually. And mm. yes, being a being a, you know, being it was a like an advertising of, thing for yourself saying, look at me. I absolutely. Like look, yeah. Look at me. I like real music. Yeah. Yes. Number three, the care needed to drop the needle for a specific track halfway through a side and just getting it just right. And then the slight surface noise before it kicked in. The sort of, Yes. Just before it started. Number two, I don't know if you've come across this in your modern vinyl, but mm. back in the 60s and 70s, if you bought an album, there was this incredible static that meant a record stuck to its inner sleeve when you took it out. Mm. That is, yes, absolutely. That does happen sometimes, actually. And I, not all my vinyl is modern. I do have stuff from the from the original age. And yes, there is. Sometimes you do have to sort of. It's like peeling a banana. You do have to take the inner sleeve yes, off. Yes, you get this kind of electrical crackling as you take it out. Number one adverts on nineteen sixties single sleeves. Oh wow! <laughs> you, you used to get adverts for like hair dryers. Yes. And makeup on Beatles absolutely. singles. Absolutely. Timex watches as well. Time yes, X all sorts of things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I still, do, you know, if I hear She Loves You Now, I still yes. think of the green sleeve with a cartoon on the back with two young um, teens um, talking about uh, going out for the evening and how uh, this hairdryer made all the difference to their lives. Absolutely. Yes, they made everything. <laughs> that is That is great. I love that. 
Coming next, Pink's ordeal in Hyde Park. And I'm going to ask Juliet to explain the appeal of one of those popular music groups, mm. yours. That's next after Casey Musgraves. All that I know Is you caught me at the right time Keep me in your glow Cause I'm having such a good time With you Baby, don't you know That you're my girl favourite albums of recent years five years old now four grammys including album of the year number six in the uk number four on billboard uh, the title track from her excellent album casey musgraves and golden hour i so approve of casey musgraves she's so talented it took me a while just to get around to listening to her but she is brilliant what a what a talent what an artist yeah now i was re i was reading recently um about Maine K 
character syndrome, which is a situation where someone presents themselves or imagine themselves as the mm. lead in a sort of fictional version of their life. And perhaps we perhaps we all have it at times, but some people live an extreme version of it. And these are the people who have no off switch and, for example, run onto football fields or cricket fields or yes. Rush to appear with a politician on a platform and take over or try to grab selfies with famous people at the most inappropriate moments. Yes, quite. And I was reminded of main character syndrome this week when I read about the ordeal of the singer Pink at her gig at Hyde Park last weekend. Quite. Now, some people think it's it was OK to throw jelly beans at the Beatles in the early 1960s because... Yes. George said he liked um, jelly beans, jelly babies. Others threw underwear at Tom Jones. And I saw, a, 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 not too many years ago, <coughs> excuse me, I saw a fellow approach the stage and give Barbara Streisand a huge bouquet of flowers, um, leaving her momentarily unsure what to do with them mid-song. And she mm. laid them on the floor and they, they looked alarmingly like a sort of memorial. Oh, yes, that's not, that's not a great vibe. Not a good look. None of this, though, Jules, compares to some Egypts who attended Pink's gig at Hyde Park last weekend. What a strange turn of events this is. To, to quote uh, the wonderful Mel Brooks when he appeared as a guest on The One Show, which is also, by the way, one of the most bizarre things in British <laughs> public life. Um, he appeared on it and they said, now we're going to go back to Patricia. And, and there was a pause and Mel Brooks just went, what a crazy show this is. And, <laughs> I, and, and I feel that Mel Brooks, has, in, his, in his own inimitable way, has summed up the weirdness of British public life. So, yes, in, in more what a crazy show this is news, Pink appeared in Hyde Park and um, was presented with various gifts by fans during the show. <laughs> One was a family-sized wheel of brie. And in this excellent Joel Golby article in, um, in, in The Guardian, it, the, sum, the, the headline sums this up. Choosing to throw a full wheel of brie at pink is not a normal decision, but these are not normal times. You're telling me, Joel, goodness me. Um, I don't know. Yeah, what is the thought process behind that? <laughs> also, then someone gave their mother's ashes debris at one, to a pink at one point. In a plastic a bag. I know, which is, this is your mum. I don't know how to feel about this. I think that is a totally fair summary. Good. Oh, for God's sake. Yeah, it's very strange, isn't it? Like you say, main character syndrome is a good way of summing this up. I think um, it's very, um, it's very unusual and very bizarre that you just go to see Pink and it's, um, it just feels like this. Um, as Joel puts, this nat- natural end point for ravenous fan culture because so much of being a super fan, screaming yourself hoarse in a stadium, is feeling like you uniquely understand the artist and you uniquely know everything about them, and a lot of that to do with knowing law. Pink holding up a ban of a bag of ashes and saying, "I don't know how to feel about this," immediately goes into the Pink Law Book, for instance. Being a Pink fan now involves knowing that that happens. Happens. Being the person who handed Pink the bag of ashes, no one will ever have Pink cremains like you did. You and her are bonded over this forever. It's very strange, isn't it? It's just mm, a very, it it's is. very odd kind of thing. And it's and it's this idea that you have to, like you say, you have to have, you have this sort of ultra competitiveness, really. That in a world of social media. It makes us feel much nearer to people than we actually are, I think, in reality as well, because certain stars share on social media. But like you say, when we talked about Paul McCartney recently, 
it's the same stories he ever shares, isn't it? He has this kind of constructed persona, which I completely understand, by the way. We're not criticising him for it, but um, that's what you have to do to navigate being one of the most world famous people there is, probably the most world famous person there is, I would say, Paul McCartney, probably. Um, so, yeah, that gives us this kind of, uh, you know, we think that we're closer to them when, in fact, we're probably further away than ever, aren't we, really? And people are trying to bridge that gap. I find this really strange. You know, I'm very much looking forward to seeing PJ Harvey in September, but I probably, we won't be taking our cheese with this, partly because my partner is dairy intolerant, but, um, but you know, we, we probably won't take her some Cathedral City dairy-free cheese. I suspect that we can probably just content ourselves with standing on the on the balcony at the Roundhouse. See you there, anyone that's going, by the way. But, yeah, it's... Uh, very strange experience isn't it this is this is such a head scrambling story there's lots about the professionalism of pink that she just stayed stayed fairly calm i think it says she was a bit of a trooper i thought well the incongruity of chucking a plastic Mm. bag with your mother's ashes in it to a pop star midway through her concert what was the poor woman supposed to do? Hold some sort of ceremony and bury them under the stage. Mm. But it, it is the wheel of brie that intrigues me. Anyone who's attended these summer gigs in Hyde Park knows that security is so tight. They don't let you bring in chairs, for example. No. Um, How on earth did that get in? That's that's my point. I mean, there's always yes. a mountain of these chairs abandoned at the entrance. However, it seems that you can bring in a giant wheel of cheese, which seemed to have <laughs> an equally giant round wooden board attached to it. How very did strange. they get it in? It was as big as a dustbin lid. I mean, it's very why, strange. Why on it? earth would anyone carry a wheel of brie around on a boiling hot day? By the way, God knows what state it was in. Yes, and, that know, would have ripened, I think, by that point. I, I think it would have done. Going back to the ashes, I was thinking, what's next? Someone hauling their parents' coffin into Hyde Park and <sighs> presenting it to Billy Joel on stage this weekend. You know, where Absolutely. Would, where would it all end? <laughs> it's ridiculous. It Absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> now, I've learnt my lesson in previous years of watching acts performing live at Glastonbury oh, yes. and being critical of them. I mean, when quite rightly, people have come back to me and said, well, look, you have to be there in person. You can't get the atmosphere on TV. And Jules, I try to keep this in mind when watching the Arctic Monkeys at Glastonbury last weekend. I didn't know much about them before, um, but they headlined on the Friday night, by the way. Yes. I want to know what I'm missing because I seriously just didn't get it at all. I saw a bloke with zero communication skills um, singing what felt to me rather drone-like songs and adopting rock star poses with his boots on the monitors and so on. What am I missing with your Arctic Monkeys? Well, I love the fact that you consider them to be mine as well. The <laughs> fact that I am less than 18 months away from turning 40 and remain this show's young person's correspondent <laughs> fills me with a great deal of joy. So thank you very much, Seti, <laughs> a.k.a. Methuselah, I think, in comparison. But uh, yeah, well, if it makes you feel any better, Sir Terence, I know people that are big fans of the Arctic Monkeys. And they didn't get it either. It was a oh, very strange performance. The Arctic so for, for, for context, the Arctic Monkeys have, uh, have headlined Glastonbury previously before. And maybe this is an argument 
that there are certain bands that probably don't have more than one or two Glastonbury headline shows in them. I would compare and contrast with Coldplay at this point. And again, to link back to what we were saying earlier about egos and how refreshingly ego-free Angie Ridgely was, I don't think Chris Martin has much of an ego, actually, because they seem to be able to. And again, this links back to a conversation we had a few weeks ago about bands that get headlining festivals right and bands that get it wrong mm. is realising it's, and again, main character syndrome, realising that it is not all about you, exactly. but also that it is about the position that you hold, which is headlining. So Coldplay will give people a good time. The weird thing about this Arctic Monkeys set, even speaking to someone that very much likes a lot of the music of the Arctic Monkeys, the Arctic Monkeys went off in a slightly strange direction a few years ago. Um, they released a... Um, an album called Tranquility Base Hotel and Casino. I think that was what it was called. And it was a very weird album, Seti. It was very slow. We can't quite understand. Well, we could understand why the drummer of the Arctic Monkeys was a drummer for hire with people like Josh Holm, because I think he just wanted to play the drums. And he did not do a lot of that on that album. It became very much about Alex Turner, the singer's sort of vision. And some of the versions of their sort of big hits that they played during this set they played in a very weird way. They played in the style of that album. They played it very sort of slowed down and spaced out. And uh, the, the, the sort of, there was a, an argument, I think, in the noughties when the first Arctic Monkeys album came out. I was saying to someone the other day, if you wanted to pick the lyricists that summed up what it was like to be a young person in your 20s in Britain in, in the 2000s, which I was, by the way, I was 16 in 2000 and 26 in 2010. So the lyricists and singers that were summing up my life I would say in the in the 2000s were Amy Winehouse, Lily Allen, Dizzy Rascal, Mike Skinner of the Streets and Alex Turner from the Arctic Monkeys. Mm. Those were the people that that really understood what it was like to be young, a young person and often a young working class person in Britain and the first Arctic Monkeys album is a brilliant record of that. There's a there's lovely songs on it and 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 yet Mike Skinner recognised this. He then followed it up with a, an album about um, basically how weird it is to become famous. As he said, I couldn't write songs about being in the queue of a chip shop anymore because I wasn't. And and I think that the Arctic Monkeys and Alex Turner particularly might have suffered from the same syndrome. And like you say so well, I now feel that Alex Turner is playing the role of a cartoon rock star and therefore are having these very weird sets where they're playing. They don't want to do what they did previously. Fine. I, I admire and respect that. But you just in the end, if what you're doing isn't more interesting than what you were previously doing, and I have to be honest, it isn't. It's fine, their music now, but it's not the same. It's not as good. If what you're doing is not as interesting as what you started off doing, then you're going to become less interesting over time, aren't you? Because if, if, the set was done through a prism of what they sound like now, which is mm. not as good. It's dull. It's not as I'm sorry to say, because it, it's not mm. not good. I like it, but it's duller than what they were doing. And they, they haven't sort of grown into, they've outgrown themselves, but they haven't grown into themselves is what is where I would class them. So yes, it was a bit of a failure for me, their set. There are, you know, I've got friends that are Artist Monkeys fans that may disagree, but tellingly, I've got friends that are Artist Monkeys fans that like me were just sort of baffled by it. So I would recommend you listen to their first album, said T. Whatever people say I am, that's what I'm not. Their early records, and also AM is brilliant as well. That was the record at which you really thought, oh, yeah, this is fantastic. It's got elements of hip-hop in it. It's really good. It's produced by Josh Holm. Marvellous record. 
But yet since then, they seem to have become unmoored is how I would sum them up. I know that they've had big hit albums and I have not. I'm very much aware of that. But um, yeah, I did like like you. I was even as a fan, I found this confusing. Oh, that's that's very helpful. I've jotted down. I listened to that uh, article. It's a, it's a great record. Other. It's a great. I'm not sure <laughs> if you could quite capture. And it, this sounds patronising. I don't mean it to be mm. at all. Okay. But it's particularly just captures what being a young person at that time was about. But it's a brilliant record. And also, I love the fact that they just they exploded. They went from MySpace to absolutely exploding. And I still remember being on an on an escalator in the London Underground in beginning of 2006 so february 2006 so i can absolutely carbon date this now i bet you could look good on the dance floor come out and was a huge hit because it's a genuinely exciting record it's fantastic the way that it just piles in is so good and i can still remember being on work experience at a human rights law firm in london in north london and being on the tube with a um a solicitor that was very much of the kind of alternative sphere and old school sort of 70s 60s 70s lefty i would say and and um and a barrister bless her you know quite well-spoken groovy barrister and i can still remember her saying to us have you heard these arctic monkeys that everybody's going on about and they will always be these arctic monkeys that everybody's going on about and the solicitor said in the seen it all before voice it just sounds like george formby to me and that exchange will always live on to me of these two bar these barrister and solicitor trying to make sense of this new young and they were like and they literally went you're a young person what do you think of them and i I was 21 at the time and i said they're great i absolutely love them so uh, so yeah maybe that's it <laughs> i think that may be it indeed thanks very much for listening this week good to have you along absolutely agreed and well as you're not on george and thea's wedding list you'll have plenty of time for your radio show this weekend i will yes indeed for people that listen regularly i lost the words on a summer break so that will be back at some point in the autumn but i will continue to be smooth sailing on sunday evening Rain. from 7 to 9 p.m um on noiseboxradio.com yacht rock mor aor easy listing and classic pop wham have been played before as have george michael i'm sure we will play them again at some point all aboard um a bit of saxophone to play us out, uh, Jules. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well done for correctly spelling and pronouncing saxophone <laughs> as well. Thank you, The Simpsons, for introducing us to saxophone and trampoline as uh, as things that you call them. Um, yeah, I love this. And uh, uh, there's some there's such exciting in the last five years have been such exciting uh, artists, acts, bands, singers, performers coming from the modern jazz scene in the UK. And I love Nubia Garcia. I think she's so talented. And I hadn't really listened to much of her stuff until recently. And this is where Spotify and its algorithms are helpful in that it throws things at you. If you like this, you'll like this. And I've listened to Comet is Coming and people like that. And I was thrown this and brilliant and, and an unusual example of you know when you have your box set Sati, you know mm. all of the alternative versions of songs and 90 um, percent of the time you just think well these alternative versions are proving to me how good the the proper version is because <laughs> all of these original versions are not good and uh, they're just very you know first drafty <laughs> this is the alternative take of a song and both versions are found on the on this ep by nubia garcia and i'm not sure it's an ep or a mini album i'm not sure it's one of those things where there's only a few songs in it and you think i don't know how i'm classifying this what am i what am i saying this is i don't really know um this is from um ep slash mini album slash i don't know um from uh from nubia garcia <laughs> it's called 
Nubia's Five, but brilliantly, has more than five songs on it, which I very much admire. Well, it has five songs, plus this alternative, or this alternate take, which makes it Nubia's Six, really. And this is the alternate take of Hold, and it is marvellous.
You've been listening to a Parish Council production. <laughs> <laughs>